Amen. It's Communion Sunday, and as we've gathered this morning, as you've already figured out, and as I mentioned earlier, you have these uh, dump your distraction boxes created by Miss Kate Houghton. And um, thank God, I just uh, thank you, Kate, for making those and just for that thought and that, that, that thing that was in your heart and just to, to get these up here and just compliments everything that's going on. And it's a great way to conclude our service, too, to remind us that our distractions are to be let go and to be surrendered and then given to God and that we can overcome those things. And that's what this morning we're talking about. We're talking about overcoming distractions in our lives as followers of Jesus. Amen. Doing his work. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at overcoming our disappointments, which we often have so many of those, and we will continue to have those, by the way. doesn't mean they're fun, doesn't mean that, uh, uh, that uh, they're easy, but uh, we will have those, and we are able to overcome those dis- disappointments in our lives. And, and we're also able to overcome distractions. And as we were in Ezra and Nehemiah a couple weeks ago, we looked at the people of God that came out of their captivity, and they were now all excited to be back in their homeland, but the, it's just destroyed. There's nothing there. Everything is empty. And they were all so excited, and yet at the same time, it was just so daunting to have to rebuild that temple. And they, they got to work, and they rebuilt that foundation. And then there was a disappointment, especially by the older folks. And even before they started building, they were disappointed that there was literally nothing left, and they had to start from scratch. Doesn't that stink? When you've done something in your life or you've had something in your life and everything gets just broken down to nothing and you've got to start all over again and it feels like you're, you're reinventing the wheel again with something in your life. That's disappointing. So they experience that. And then when the foundation is laid of the temple, they realize, especially those who had, had seen the temple before it was demolished, they were just, this thing's puny. It pales in comparison to what we had before our captivity. Before we were just annihilated, our land was destroyed and brought to rubble. And they were disappointed. And remember we talked about there was, there was this rejoicing by the younger generation because now they had a place where they could worship and build the temple. And the older folks were weeping and it was a crazy weird sound, right? A mix of weeping and, and rejoicing at the same time. And it was so loud. And, and eventually they got to that work and they laid that foundation. And there was a delay and eventually they built that temple. They did build that temple. There was a delay, but they got to work and they went, it took many years, but they finished those walls and they built that temple, amen, where they could do sacrifices again and bring sacrifices to God. You know, they, it was, they looked at that disappointment of the new foundation of the temple after Israel's captivity, as I mentioned, and in spite of all those circumstances, and they had enemies as well, and Ezra points them out, opposition to doing that work and being ridiculed and so on and so forth, it's critical to have the altar of our heart ready to worship. And that's why they built that altar. Remember that? Seeing God for who He is and seeing ourselves for who we are and reminding ourselves of our identity. We're the children of God and God keeps His covenant. In addition, the foundation of Christ in our lives is relayed, right? We, we, we relay that by our obedience to the Word of God. When we've gone through that phase like like God's people did, they were disobedient, they disregarded, they didn't follow God's ways and they got themselves in a heap of trouble. And they were desolate and they were hurting and they were longing for that time and now they're home and they relayed uh, that foundation. And, And when we do that, we are then careful, right, to do what He plans for us, not what we plan or think is best. When we have His Word, His commands is our foundation. And all the while, while all this is happening, we commit ourselves to praise God no matter what. Amen? 
Amen. We'll do it. Listen, here's the thing. The devil is relentless when it comes to destroying God's work. He will never stop until he's dealt with once and for all in the future. He will never stop. And he knows his time is short. We've heard that many times. We know that. Remember, he never gives up. After one great event or a successful ministry or service that you did in obedience to the Lord, don't let your guard down. Don't let it down. There's more work to do as God builds up his church and we work under his commands to expand his kingdom. It's not the end. You did that little thing and you feel so good. There's still more work to be done. We need to be, we need to, we must be watchful after the victory, right? And after all the, I'll call them the spiritual highs of knowing that we were used by God and we can serve and we feel good and that joy, right? After the victory, I'll call it, because the next battle is coming. After one hurdle, we can expect to see another After solving one problem with God's instruction, guidance through His Word and by His Spirit, we'll find another one coming up. The fight goes on. It doesn't end. This is what happened to Israel and to Ezra, Nehemiah and Haggai. They document all of this in the Old Testament. Just like we go through, God's people did the same thing. After the foundation was laid to build the temple, as I mentioned, there was a delay in Ezra. But in Haggai 2, who was a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah, he was a prophet for the current time. And Zechariah, who came after, he was also contemporary. He prophesied about future things. But in the moment, God was prophesying through Haggai and speaking to the people of God in that moment. And in chapter 2 of Haggai, in your Bible, God says in through, this through the prophet, On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? He's expressing what they were already feeling. Remember that mixture, the older generation? And they were looking at it and saying, this is unbelievable. I'm glad we're back, but like this is pitiful. And he's, he's actually addressing that very plain Hebrew to them, right? And, 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 and we can read this in plain English in our Bibles, right? And he says, who was left of you that saw this? Doesn't it seem like nothing? But he says in verse 4 in chapter 2 of Haggai, But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work. Now there's a novel idea in our culture, in our world today. Work. Get to it. You have to work at your spirituality. You cannot earn or work your way to salvation. But you've got to work at your experience, your relationship with God and service to God. It's work. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes all your resources. It's work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty, God says through Haggai. This is what I, being God, I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Take that to heart even today. 
New Hope Chapel, Church of God. Take that to heart. Even those words were then. Hear those words and take them to heart and make them yours today. Those exact words. Be strong, all you people of New Hope Chapel, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of your slavery to sin. And my spirit remains among you. Don't be afraid. Work. This is what the Lord Almighty says in verse 6. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. But the foundation's so much smaller. It's pitiful compared to what we had. How could he be saying that? Did he see that temple that Solomon built? There's nothing like it. How could he say that? That's a false prophet. I'm not doubting that there was some murmuring like that when they heard these words. Looking at the external, looking at the superficial, comparing and being so disappointed. And he says, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. The distraction of comparison is very obvious here. Because when we compare, it takes our eyes off the task before you and focuses on what someone else is doing or has done or what they have or how much, how much they had or how much they have now or are accruing now. This could have been and probably was a huge distraction after the captivity. But God, He raised up leaders to remind and to motivate His people to stay focused on the task until completion. The key to overcoming distraction was God's promise. I am with you, don't fear. I'm with you, don't fear. What great words knowing that the God of the universe, your Savior, your Redeemer is with you, will never leave you, and He will come through on His words for you. He will not let you fail or fall, and He'll take you all the way to the end, because Jesus, by the way, is the author and the finisher of our faith. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. Now, it was time at this point, after, after Zerubbabel is raised up by God, and Haggai uses, and, 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 and Ezra, they resume building, and they complete that temple, and now in Nehemiah, the book after Ezra, Nehemiah comes into the picture and he comes on the scene and it was time for the walls of the city of Jerusalem to be built up because they weren't totally leveled, but essentially they were. They they were mostly destroyed. There was gaps everywhere. Some places it was down to the ground. Some places it was not. It needed to be rebuilt and repaired like majorly, like majorly. Now, I don't mean to, to, to highlight this, but some of you who are following and the, the horrific things that are happening in, 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 in Gaza and in Israel over there, if you look at the scenery, honestly, this is kind of what the walls of Jerusalem look like. All those piles of rubble. Some buildings, you could see one wall standing, but everything else is just dust. That's how the entire circumference of Jerusalem was. Those walls around Jerusalem and around the temple looked. There was no protection and it wasn't marked off and it was all just rubble 
And so God raises up these leaders. And here, Nehemiah speaks up and God uses him. And by the way, Nehemiah, he says so in the book. He says that he was a cupbearer to the king. He's a cupbearer. And he, and he, and, and he, he was somebody who was absolutely amazing and a great model for us to look at if we're going to overcome distractions. Now notice, now I'm not going to read every, every scripture. I'm just going to point these out to you because I encourage you this week to read the book of Nehemiah. It's 13 chapters, but it's loaded with great principles for us to learn how to overcome distractions. And in Ezra as well. There's short reads. Listen, in chapters 1 and 2 of Nehemiah, we see something amazing. And I took note of this, that Nehemiah, who was just not only the cupbearer to the king, but he had his heart set on the work of rebuilding. When he came, he looked around and he surveyed everything and he saw what was going on. His heart was just melted and it broke out when he saw the destruction and the desolation that was happening of those walls in that land around the temple now that was, that was built up. He was heartbroken. He was burdened by the fact that this task had to be done, had to be completed, and he was set on that work and doing that work. He did it also, you'll notice, in chapter 1 and 2, but you'll also, as your homework is this week, as you read Nehemiah, you will see that he also prayed a lot. You will notice that throughout Nehemiah, that he prayed and called out to God for help and for assistance. And he never did it without consulting God. He was constantly calling out to God in prayer. That helped him to avoid distractions for the task that God called him to lead in rebuilding that wall with God's people. He did everything with prayer. And you know what else we find? He worked selflessly. He had certain rights, if you will, And when you read through Nehemiah, I don't have time to go through all of them, but I have to highlight it. He worked selflessly. He wasn't distracted by self and what was his right or what he could do because of his position in leading the charge and overseeing all this work and handing it off to the priests. And they were all working. And you'll find in one of the chapters there, a whole chapter devoted to how each priest and under their care, all those people, they were working on different parts of the wall around the entire city. You know what's amazing? 52 days later, they rebuilt all the wall. All the wall in its entirety around the city of Jerusalem. 52 days! Less than 50,000 people, and not all of them could even work. That's who returned back from the exile. And, and oftentimes, they were so occupied and preoccupied with defending themselves and worrying about distractions, which we'll get to in a minute. But 52 days, and they rebuilt the entire thing with the exception of the doors, which they did complete later on. So God is amazingly working through, through, through Nehemiah. And you have to remember that he experienced a lot of things. And one of the things that you'll notice, as I mentioned through Nehemiah, is that he was not easily sidetracked from his work. Not easily distracted. Not taken off course for what had to be done. In today's world, it's so easy to get distracted, isn't it? In fact, distractions, as you know, are the cause of most accidents. Because nobody texts and drives. And in Rhode Island, nobody holds their phone to their ear while they're driving. Distracted. Distracted driving is as bad as drunk driving. They tell you that in driver's ed. Oh, Preston's not here. But they they talk about that. Distracted driving leads to accidents. And it can be fatal. It can be devastating. It can be horrific what can happen. But what about our spiritual life? Can distractions get in the way there as well? 
Now, March Madness is just around the corner. Anybody know what March Madness is? It is fun. I have to be honest. I mean, again, it can be a distraction. Be careful. But March Madness is that, that tournament in college basketball, Division I, that is it's so fun. It's the, it's the best thing to watch. You have these guys who are fighting and playing with all, their hearts are left on that floor, right? They're not worried about contracts. I'm sure some of them think about who's going to draft them and whatnot. They want to win it all, and they want to show the world who they are so they could move up to the next level. Right? And there's just so much enthusiasm and focus that goes on in this. Now listen, if you want, if you want to see an example of repeated and raucous attempts to distract a basketball player, just watch when it's time for a free throw. Oh my goodness. I mean, if you know, and, and it's getting kind of weirder by the week when I watch some of the things that are used to distract players who are shooting free throws, right? I mean, you will notice some amazing things. You'll, you'll, you'll see all kinds of weird waving and people spinning around and doing crazy things behind the basketball hoop, right? Then you'll see people yelling their brains out. They're losing their voices and yelling all kinds of stuff to distract and get their focus off of that their, their whole rhythm and their whole, and just and to, and to release that ball and, and focus on that hoop 15 feet away, right? And then you see goofy signs. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You know, these big blown up pictures of heads of celebrities or weirdos or whatever, made up characters, whatever it is, just to distract. And then they have these wheels that are like this big on these sticks and they have the spiral thing and they spin it and they're all around trying to make you you know, they try. Then they got those pool noodles all over the place that they even hand out, right? And in some events, they even have clappers where you're, you're clapping, you slap these things and it's loud. You, you get the idea. Distract, distract, distract. And not only that, it can be a distraction with the entire arena of 18,000 people on the one player standing all by himself having to make that free throw to tie or win the game. It's exciting. It's so amazing. The pressure's on and the distractions are plentiful. And maybe a distraction for that player may even be memories of missed free throws. I'm only a 70% free throw shooter. (laughs) 68%. But if I make this next one, I'll tie the game. No, I'm not a 68% free throw shooter. I I play for UConn, and I'm making this, and we're number one. And and you refocus. You refocus in that moment. Even those past memories, you let them go. It can distract you when you failed or you missed that shot. You've got to stay focused, right? Or maybe it's even this. One more, and I'll move on. Maybe it's even standing there, and just two plays later, that player who was standing there to shoot the ball, he blocked a shot, and now his pinky is dislocated or partially dislocated. And it's his right hand, and he shoots with that hand. Is it a distraction? Oh, absolutely, but you got to get over that distraction. The game is on the line. Your team defends on it. You're depending on you. You've got to make that shot, and so you play through the pain. We don't want to hear about that anymore because, because, after all, we should all be coddled and taken care of and put in a timeout so we heal up perfectly until we could ever play again. 
even if the game is on the line. That's how a world is heading, right? Uh, frankly, a lot of snowflakes. Sorry to say that, but it's the truth, right? Lots of them, right? You know what I mean. Everyone's so soft. Oh, no, my, pink, my, my, my fingernails kind of got a little divot in it. I can't shoot the ball, you know, I mean, whatever. I, the free throw has to be shot, Forget about your pain in that moment. Forget about the missed free throws. Forget about all the people. Forget about the spiral sign going like this behind the hoop. And focus on that rim and bend those knees and use your legs and push that ball through that hoop. Tie the game, win the game, right? Life is full of distractions. A distraction is anything that diverts your attention from what you're supposed to do or where you're going, right? We understand what that what distraction is. So what is spiritual distraction? As God's people, we have a responsibility to be good examples, right, to those around us. If we lose sight of this responsibility, even for a moment, we are in danger of having a spiritual act. We don't have, and I don't think there are, <laughs> although in today's day and age, I'm sure someone figured something out to find this, but we don't have any statistics for the leading cause of our spiritual accidents. But I would take the chance to say that much like car accidents, it would be because of distractions. So what is a spiritual distraction? A spiritual distraction could be the boss that rides you harder than your coworkers as a Christian. It could be that coworker who takes credit for the work that you do. Maybe it's the neighbor who makes too much noise when you are trying to sleep. None of us have ever experienced that. Or lets his trash blow into your yard or his leaves. What if you own your own business? It could be that one customer who is never happy, like ever. You could probably add many more things to this list, but when these types of trials and distractions happen, are we focused on Jesus? The point is that when we allow these things to get to us, we are led into sin, oftentimes. Sin and bad attitudes are not good examples of how God wants us to be. Although it's often very difficult, as you know, and you can relate, we have to maintain our cool and not allow ourselves to be caught up in what is happening around us. Oh, it's so easy to do that. I've done that many times. You know, there's this uh, thought in our minds, and maybe we've heard this, and, but I'm human. I'm, just, I'm a person. I'm human. I'm not perfect. I'm human. Yes, you are. You are human. Uh, you're not an alien. You're human. You're not a robot. You're human, right? At least... Who knows? At least I think I'm seeing all humans in here, right? But you're a human, right? And here's the thing. Are we focused on the kingdom and God's plan, or do we get sidetracked and become angry just like the world around us when things don't go well, when there are distractions that, that cause our focus to be, and we're scrambled in our mind and in our agenda and in our, and our body is scrambled even and all out of sync? It's human nature, I'll call it, it's the sinful nature. To retaliate when someone hurts us. But is that what we should do? 
I think not. As God's people, we have a responsibility to be good examples to those around us. To be Christ-like. Hebrews 12, chapter, 1, uh, chapter 12, verses 1-2 to 2 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before Him endured the cross. Oh my goodness. That's, you want to talk about a distraction on His mind the entire time He lived on this earth? And especially when he, after He got baptized and He knew why God had Him on this planet, that He had to go to the cross one day after three and a half years or so of ministry? That that's the whole purpose? That's distracting knowing that i got to do everything God wants me to and do it perfectly, and he did. But I know that the end is death. Why should I bother? That's no fun. That's a painful thought. I mean, you can keep going on and on, being distracted by these things, and then all along being obedient to God, being ridiculed, and all the distractions that came his way, but he, set his, he, he went for it. The joy set before him, he endured the cross. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 35, the Apostle Paul says this. It's an interesting passage. And I actually preached this years ago. But there's a scripture here. And Paul is writing about marriage. And, about, and he's talking about whether being single or being married and when you can marry and when you can't marry and so on and so forth for believers. But the point of the thing was not about marriage. It was about marriage. He gave instructions. But the whole point was that whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're sad, whether you have a lot of possessions or don't have possessions, whether you're emotionally high or you're emotionally low, he actually references that in this passage. He says one thing. This one thing. I say this for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. He was giving them these guidelines, not to restrict and make life difficult, but to remind them that you've got to stay focused on serving the Lord, whether you're married, you're single, you're not married, whether you're poor, whether you're rich, whether you feel good, whether you don't feel good, whether you're living in sorrow, you've got to praise God and live to glorify Him. Don't be distracted. And the interesting thing about distractions is that when they happen around us or they rise up around us, we are sometimes totally unaware We have no idea that anything at all is happening to us. And then we simply react and we realize, oh man, I was distracted and I... mm, Stay alert. Focus, right? you got to focus. I'm only human. Yes, that's not an excuse. So focus. The opposite of distraction is focus. We must focus to keep ourselves from being distracted. But what does the Bible have to say about being focused? Actually, a lot from beginning to end. I don't even have time. I could talk. I could, make, I could be here for hours, which would be cool, actually. I would love to just read the scriptures for hours and just listen and just, and just take it all in. And while it is, it's inevitable, right, that we will become distracted in life, it's so important, and it's the most important thing is that we remember to stay focused on God and His ways. Proverbs chapter 4, 
I wrote this in because as we were singing, it just came to my mind. I, I remembered this, 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 and I had to search it up, but I, I wrote it down. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 25 to 27. And this is what the Word of God says in Proverbs 4, 25 to 27. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Turn your foot from distractions that are sinful, that are wicked. Turn away. Stay focused. Stay on track. Keep your eyes in front of you. It's so easy to look over there and all of a sudden before you know it, you're off track. Right? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Verse 2, Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. I'm going to read that again. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. That sounds like focus. That sounds like refocusing. That sounds like refocusing again. That sounds like reorienting your thought every day. That you set your mind on things above and not on things that are on this earth. Listen, again, as I mentioned, it's inevitable that we'll be distracted in life. Stay focused on God and His ways. And we learn to do this by studying His Word and praying for His guidance. It's simple. We just got to do it. When we put, into, put it into action by following His Word, and whenever possible, we steer clear of the areas and ways that lead us to distraction, it's amazing how transformative our life can be, and we can transform things around us with God's help. Now, I want to focus on something, going back to Nehemiah. Okay? Because I, I want you to reference that. I don't have time to read all the, pat, the big chunks of Scripture. But if you look at Nehemiah, when they started rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem, okay, there was something that happened in that journey, and in that process, I should say. There was all kinds of distractions that were brought up against Nehemiah and God's people. It starts first in chapter 4, it starts with ridicule. Sanballat, he was an enemy of God's people, and there were others as well. They called the Jews who were working on this wall to rebuild it, he called them poor and weak, and he described the wall that they started building, and it was just a few rocks high maybe. They described it, and he says, if a fox walked across it, it would crumble. Ridicule. Is it worth it? That's a waste of time. You'll never be able to do that. You're too weak. You're only human. You can't live righteously. You're going to just, no way. It's impossible. With God's grace, I can. With God's strength, I can. And by with His Word and hiding His Word in my heart, I can. Right? You can do it. But no, you're going to get ridiculed. That's pathetic. An ant could walk on that. It's going to crumble. It could have been any expression. But they were mocking and ridiculing, so they had to face that distraction. And if you allow that to constantly happen over and over again, you start thinking what you're told and that ridicule, and then you'll stop the work. Right? You'll be distracted. They wouldn't allow, he wouldn't allow that. Nehemiah would not allow that to happen, or that wouldn't allow it to happen to the people of God. And then, and then not only that, they, next in chapter 4, after they keep building, after being ridiculed, there's a, there's a process here. Then come threats of violence. 
They get, they get so angry. The enemies of God's people get so angry they want to stop the work and they actually threaten to hurt God's people. To take physical action and to hurt and fight the Jews. Right? And then, then in chapter 4 again, the wall was half built. The Bible tells us eventually it was half built. You read that in chapter 4. And the enemies were angered even more and they threatened again to come and fight. That's that violence. Bring in that violence against God's people. And then in chapter 5 and 6, we move up to another kind of distraction. We see that there's internal strife between the rich and poor among God's people. They were all working shoulder to shoulder. They're all by each other. They're working hard. And then all of a sudden, there was, it's just not fair. How come they got this? And how come he doesn't have that? And how come they're charging me you know, extra interest for borrowing money to do this? And so on and so forth. You can read about it in chapter 5 and 6. There was injustice. There was, they were being unfair. And the poor were oppressing, I mean, the rich were oppressing the poor. And the poor are upset. And they complained to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah took care of it. That was a distraction that he did not allow to linger and stop and get in the way so that they were pitted against each other and they would stop the work altogether. He would have none of it. And he called that out and he took care of it. Read about it. And then in chapter 6, the enemy moves up a notch. See, listen, let's backtrack for a second. At first, if you read in the account, they were coming against the work itself. Then they came against the people. And then they came and caused strife within the wall. The enemy, Satan, he, it was internal. Something happened there. He caused strife within that wall while they were working between the rich and the poor. And now he is going to come at Nehemiah, their leader, personally to get him off task with intent to harm. I'll just say that for time's sake. You can read about it. The Christian life is a battle from the beginning to the end. In case you weren't aware of that, let me remind you. We need to be on our guard all the time. So to watch and to pray so that we don't fall into temptation and be distracted by temptations. The devil tempted Jesus right at the beginning of his ministry. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, Luke records and says, when the devil had finished all this tempting... Right? Jesus overcame with the Word. All those distractions, those temptations. But the Bible says something, that the devil left him until an opportune time. I got a little bit of a insight for you, a little thing. The devil always finds opportune times every day, throughout the day. There is no shortage of opportune times. And God's people were experiencing that from their enemies when they're doing the Lord's work. And Nehemiah says, no, we will not be distracted. We're going to stay on task. We're going to finish this job. It's not the, it's not the end. The enemy is just waiting to strike again another time. The enemies did not give up, did they? They tried to distract Nehemiah and lure him away from the work in chapter 6, which was almost completed except for the doors and gates. And they said, let's talk and work something out. Let's meet in the plain of Ono, which is about 40 kilometers away from Jerusalem. That's a distance. 
They wanted to pull him away spatially from the work that was being done. And four times, four times, they dangled that bait before his eyes. But each time, Nehemiah refused to give in. He knew it was a scheme to harm him. He didn't bite. I am not going on. Nehemiah chose to keep God's agenda for him. He says in verse 3 of chapter 6, I am carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. He's on the wall, right? I can't come down. i got to work. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? I am doing a great work that should not be stopped. That's what he was saying. And if we have such a conviction we would be able to stick with what God wants us to do no matter what. It's a challenge to keep to God's agenda. Let's not make a mistake. Let's not uh, about it. Let's not kid ourselves. It is a challenge to keep God's agenda and to, to do what He wants us to do. Not impossible. It, otherwise, He wouldn't give it to us. But it's a challenge. It's not easy. We are confronted by distractions, and that's one of the reasons why. They come, they're disguised as harmless options or even good things. We will be tempted to go along with what everyone else is doing rather than what God wants us to do. The simplest, innocent things distract us, don't they? So many things demand our time and energy. We need to prioritize and do what is important. We need, we need what I would call planned neglect of some things, even good things. Because if we don't, we will be distracted from God's best. Now, I heard this story. I don't know if it's true, but I read the story about a missionary in China who had incredible talents, skills, abilities, and and, and one of the American companies, while he was in the mission field, tried to hire him in China. They offered him this attractive job with a salary to match, a missionary salary, and he turned it down. He told them that God had sent him to China as a missionary. I'm staying on task. He thought that that would end that discussion, right? And instead, they came back with a better offer and an increase in salary that was substantial. He turned that down too. But they came back again, doubling the financial package. And finally, he said to them after that third time, It's not your salary that's too little. It's the job that's too small. Now, whether or not that's true, that's incredible. That we would realize that the work that God has given us in your niche and with your giftings and your abilities that God has given you in your corner of the world and even at New Oak Chapel, that that, that the job is so great that you will do everything you can to be a part of it. That's an amazing thing. We have all been called to a great task. It's one that we must prioritize. God can make a difference in our world if we stick to God's calling and His purpose for our lives. And this is what makes life really significant, of course. Nehemiah knew what was important. Am I going to leave this great work and go down to you? No way. And so he planned his, this neglect He ignored their invitation four times. He's not going to forsake the great work for anything less. A few thoughts as we prepare ourselves for communion. What has been distracting you from God? 
More specifically, from doing His will. Well, it could be ourselves. It could be self. We're human and we tend to be very self-focused, aren't we? It's easy for us to get lost in our problems and ourselves to a point where we lose sight of God. Maybe you're not comfortable admitting that. You've got to face that truth. You know, there are so many, and in our world now, I don't mean to open up a can of worms, I'm just going to throw this out there, and I have no commentary except I just want to reference it. So many say, and we say, that we need a mental health break or a mental health day. Can I just say something? Keep me on track, Lord. I know, I know, I know that I know a simple, solid solution for your mental well-being. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't copy the behavior of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. You want a mental health break or restoration? Go to God and let Him change the way you think. Oh man, it's amazing what will happen. It's so cyclical and it goes around and round and round with all the things that we try to fix our mental health crisis in this world and our country and even in the church. But all the long time we've neglected this and we wonder why we're so, our mind is just all over the place. He says, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. If you have that, you're going to be so mentally well. Oh my goodness. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. God transforms us. He renews our mind when we go to Him. Amen? What about lust and love? Lust and love. People like to think that lust and love are just adolescent distractions, but they're not. Right? No matter how old or how young you are, lust and love are huge distractions from our faith. And I don't mean lust and love just for other people or human beings. I'm talking about things. I'm talking about things in life. We often find ourselves thinking of a crush before we think of God, I would just say that that is idolatry. Entertainment. We like to be entertained. And in the last days, Paul warned, and it has been the case all, the, all along historically in civilizations, but especially now, that people will love pleasure more than they will love God. Paul, Paul warned us about that to Timothy. We like to be entertained from the television to movies to books. They all provide escape from our daily lives and you can fill in the blank with a million other things, right? But should we do those things and miss out on our relationship with God in any way, shape, or form? That's between you and God. I'm not pointing anything specific out, but you, you know. If we're choosing entertainment or pleasure over God, then we have given into our distractions around us. The flesh. Things. More specifically, things, right? I'm not even going to talk about this, but except that things in this life are just here for a short time. But God is eternal, and our eternal life with Him needs to be our priority because what is physical is passing and it's going to be gone. So be careful. Don't be distracted by them. School and work. Education's great. Nobody said you shouldn't be educated. But listen, some spiritual distractions, and you go to work and you go to school, and we have to do that, but they can be distractions because spiritual distractions are often just caused by poor time management. I'm going to dump in 80 hours at work. I want to climb that next ladder. And, then, and God's like just, what about me? God's saying, 
Why have you forsaken me? Why, why you leave me in the dust? And then your family and then everything else and, 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 and your schoolwork. And I know there's seasons, but listen, if your life is consumed by that, uh, you're being distracted by accomplishments or the next thing you can get. Be careful. I'll, I'll mention one more and then we'll have communion. What about service or busyness? There are many. Even serving God can provide a spiritual distraction. You know how I know it's true? Sure, you might be working for God, but sometimes we lose sight of God in our desire to to be good servants of God. And we ought to be. A good example of this situation is Martha in Luke chapter 10 and verse 40, where the Bible specifically says that Martha was distracted. I'm not making it up. That's the word that's there. She was distracted by serving. And she became resentful that her sister Mary was not helping her in the kitchen when Jesus came to visit. And yes, Jesus reminded her that he needed to become first, not the kitchen work. Her heart wasn't in a godly place. When we're doing God's work, God needs to be the reason behind what we do. And only you can know that between your conscience and what God wants you to do. There is a fine line and God knows what it is. Take the communion cup that's in your seat. I'm going to ask Kate to come forward. In Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, verse 51. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, the Bible records, Luke records, and it came about when the days were approaching for his ascension, that is Jesus's, that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. He made up his mind and said, nothing will distract me from getting to that city of David where I am going to be crucified to pay the ransom for the sins of many, many people. And this was a documentation of Jesus' determination and his focus to complete the job that God had for him, again, to pay that ransom for my sins, for your sins. And even in Matthew chapter 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus struggled, as we know, with his disciples as they wandered off into a sleep. And he struggled and he fought with God and he would not allow his flesh to distract him from doing whatever God wanted him to do. And that's why he said, I really don't want this, but God, not my will. Your will be done. He was focused determined, undistracted, even by his weariness. And that brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we often read, and we read when we partake in communion, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul said this in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Can I, can I just... Focus on one thing as we examine ourselves before we partake. What has distracted you from proclaiming, and even this morning, maybe there's something that's distracting you right now from proclaiming 
through this participation, the Lord's death. Kate's going to sing a song in a minute. The boxes are still here. Maybe you do got to write it out and put it in there. Maybe you got to come to the altar and before you partake, lay down that distraction and ask God to help you to overcome that distraction. He will. I'm not promising you it's easy and neither does Jesus. But it'll help you overcome the distractions. And you know, our job in partaking is to proclaim the Lord's death. That was the whole reason that Jesus came and he was undistracted until he fulfilled that mission. How about you? Are you undistracted in the mission God gave you to tell everyone you can the good news that we deserve to die, but Jesus died in our place? Lord, thank you this morning for this word. We give you our distractions. And Father, when we're ready, as Kate sings this song, and maybe we need to bring distractions to these boxes or to the altar, God, I pray that you would help us when we're ready, that we would partake. Search our hearts. We lay down our distractions. We lay down those things that hinder us from walking in the fullness of your power and your will. Help us, Lord. May your death be proclaimed. May the gospel go forth because of our focus on you and your will. Amen.
to the 